There's a scene in Forrest Gump that has always stuck with me, um, and I thought today was going to be a great enough. Um, we're nearing the end of the year, and you might, if you remember the movie, there's a scene where Forrest Gump, he, he's in a bar celebrating New Year's Eve, and he's hanging out with the tent stand, and also some prostitutes that we've been paying as well. And um, the, there's a moment when the, the countdown is happening, and one of the prostitutes says to Forrest, um, she says this, Don't you love New Year's? You get to start all over. Everybody gets a second chance. And you can see that she says it really with such grief, regret, and longing for something different. I think often when we turn the pages in the new year, maybe not so dramatically, but we too feel the regret of things that have happened in the past year, things that wish we had done, things that we wish we hadn't done. And we, we hope for that change. And you know, kind of often there's also this post-Christmas blues that happens as well, right? You get all the excitement of the Christmas season, Christmas Day happens, all the family affairs happens, and, and then it's kind of over. And it feels like you're just back to the grind, and here in Iowa we've got to face still the long winter that is to come. But we remember in the Christian liturgical calendar, and on today, the first day after, the first Sunday after Christmas, that really it's just the beginning of remembering what Christ has done. That in this liturgical calendar, we rehearse what Christ has done, his ministry. So we are on a journey from now to Easter to the cross with Jesus to remember that our power to change is not some arbitrary day that happens every year, but our power to change comes through Christ himself. And I just want to ask you this question. Seems like a very obvious question. Do you want a second chance of change? Do you have a longing to change? And most everyone would find some reason to say yes. And yet at the same time, when push comes to shove, when our stuff, our sin is challenged, we often resort going back to, well, that's just who I am. That's just my personality. And we don't want God to challenge that. Often our hearts do get cast. And the scriptures speak to that. That left to our own devices, our hearts are cast to God and cast to change. That we rather just take the path of least resistance and just continue being who we are. Scripture teaches us, as we heard um, in the assurance of peace, that God wants to give us a new heart. That's what he's in the business of doing. The old man is gone, and the new man has come. And that even when we have faith in Christ, we still fight the effects of sin in our life. And we do so realizing and knowing that sin doesn't hold us hostage anymore. That we have the freedom through Christ. Now, we've been in Narnia, so here, that's my, my first reference to Narnia here. But in the line which in the wardrobe, if you think about the characters, we don't like to identify with heroic oldest brother, Peter, or perhaps strong and beautiful Susan, or perhaps just unbearably cute, childlike faith, Lucy. And yet, C.S. Lewis means for all of us at the same time to identify with Edmund. That, like Edmund, we all have an inclination towards selfishness, towards being self-absorbed, 
And that white head there, there's always a temptation for us to drift towards the white witch, to drift towards the temptations that she brings. And again, it's, it's just, it's easy. It's easy for our hearts to get hardened, and we don't even realize it, that we can have a fear of self-examination, um, a fear of facing the depth of brokenness that is in us, and that can keep us hardened. Sometimes we can watch people we care about age very poorly. And I don't mean physically. I mean just becoming super grumpy old people. Now there's a, I've worked at a nursing home. There's a lot of reasons to be grumpy when nothing works. But I want on a soul level, on a character level, who do we want to age into being that our character as a person shines through even when Nothing physically works. I wonder, have you ever thought, well, when I get older, I won't be like that. And when you're young, you're many years and it's easy to be idealistic about that. But even by the time you reach my age, in my 20s, you begin to realize it's really difficult. Change can be really difficult. Aging gracefully to show forth the character of Christ can be really difficult. I wonder if you can remember a time just in your life, no matter how old you are, when your heart felt when your heart felt less hardened by the hurts that other people inflicted on you. When your heart felt less hardened by just the general cynicism in the world, when your heart felt less hardened by your own sin, your own inability to change. Can you remember a time when your heart felt soft? and responsive to God and to others and willingness to change. And that's really what we're going to explore today. And the main point being that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God in flesh, so let's soften our hearts to sanctify Him. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God in flesh, so let's soften our hearts to His sanctifying Him. You heard Greg earlier by Janet, the, the passage in Malachi. I'll just repeat a few, few verses from there. It really should remind us that often we don't appreciate the holiness of God. We're very comfortable with thinking of Jesus as our friend, which he is. But we forget the holiness of God. So verse 2 here in Malachi, he says, But who can enjoy the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refined fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the new years. No matter how we just talk about Christmas, we talk about Jesus as God in the flesh, God incarnate, we tend to think of God as this. And Malachi really tells us here that God is a God who wants to come near. And there's a passage from the Old Testament that we believe is a prophecy of the Messiah to come. And that every Christmas, often this verse is read. But we have to first remember read this verse less individualistically and more communally as a people of God. And what we learn here is that God is holy and He desires for us to be holy as well. And if God is a God who comes near, then there's Two effects based on the community. That one, God's coming near 
will bring judgment to his people. That's just the necessity of who he is and who we are. He is perfectly holy and we are perfect. And so therefore, there, there will be a judgment that comes from that. And there will be a judgment to those who are unwilling to respond to God's call to change into his holiness. But the second thing we see, the second effect is this, that God's coming here will refine those whose desire is to change into what God calls them to. That they will become a people who will bring the kind of worship, the kind of offering that will be righteous in God's sight, that will be a pleasing aroma to them. It is really um, interesting because when we tend to think of God as distant, and yet we want to think of him as, as our friend, we tend to downplay the holiness of God. And C.S. Lewis understands this weird tension that we have in our relationship with God and how we perceive God. And you've heard these passages from the language and the order of this to remember as we look at Malachi 3. And so here's a section where the children are speaking with Mr. and Mrs. Meeker. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell him. Jesus Christ is not safe, but he is good. It's funny, I mean, I've heard this quote so many times, but I, I, I was just hearing it in today's culture, and I realized it's hard to digest, hard, hard to digest this phrase in today's culture, where safety is valued so highly. What do you mean that God is not safe? Is God going to trigger me left and right? Is that what this is about? We increasingly expect our relationships to be safe places. And in the context of what we're talking about in our culture, it's a good thing, right? We should expect not to have to face prejudice, bigotry, abuse, hurt from people. And we should strive to create that kind of society with the means that we have. But safety cannot mean the absence of ever feeling bad. Safety cannot mean the absence of ever feeling bad. God uses feelings of guilt to show us that something is wrong, that we have done wrong. And if we are still committed to safety as the absence of feeling any bad, then we cannot be led to the change that God desires from us. When the Holy God comes near and our hearts are soft towards Him, then what we will feel is guilt that we have not lived up to His holiness. Now, when God is the God who comes near, we celebrate that in Christmas. And that means that feelings of guilt will come when we experience Him coming near. But we are not left living a life driven by guilt. We are not left living a guilt-driven life. That's not what I'm saying. I would say that in my own experience as a Christian, as I've grown in my faith, I would say my Christian life has been one of more guilt and less shame. So I don't even have to explain this, I know. More guilt than even more grace. What I mean by this is that there are more feelings of 
passing guilt because I see that God reveals more and more how much I fall short of His grace in so many different ways. And then as a result of that, there is a feeling of I've done wrong, of guilt before God, but it is a passing guilt. And it's less feelings of shame because I've come to understand more and more that God is a God. God does accept me as I am because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That no more, maybe not no more, but less and less do I view these feelings of not being good enough in God's eyes, of not being acceptable in God's eyes, of not being lovable in God's eyes. But God is a God who comes down to love us as we are, to set us free from our brokenness. I feel less shame because I can experientially see more and more the original goodness in which God has been calling us. Yes, we are broken, but we're also made in the image of God. And theologians, Orthodox theologians, across the board, have pretty much said we have not lost that image in which we are made. There is goodness in that image. I feel more guilt, but even more grace. The guilt is passing. If I confess that guilt to God, what I experience in you is His grace, His forgiveness, His love. So it is not a guilt for you, but rather a grace given A grace that empowers me to move forward to face the change that God calls me to. And we're going to dig deep into these passages of Colossians, which really shows us my power to change. To remind us of the main point that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God in flesh, so let's soften our hearts to the sanctifying Him. Now, in this letter to the Colossians, Paul is trying to correct the church's view on who Christ is. This might sound like a very obvious thing to say, but who we believe Christ is is going to have a huge impact on our worship. Who we believe Christ is going to have a huge impact on how we worship Him. The first thing we see here in the Colossian text is this. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God in flesh. Verses 9 and 10 says this. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul is trying to tell the Colossians, Jesus is God. Period. When Paul said that in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, he's trying very hard trying very clearly to say Jesus is God, Jesus is one with God the Father. The Greek word he uses for deity is theosis, and it's a purposeful choice to help clarify to the audience that Paul's not saying that he's divine, but not like God the Father. He's not saying that Jesus is kind of like a godly man. He's trying to say that Jesus is God. And he follows it up with a description of who Jesus is by saying that he is head of all human authority. And that kind of lordship that is described there is only attributable to God himself, the one true God. And we have to remember that the context in which this is preached for Paul is a Jewish context of Jesus coming as the one true God, claiming faith as the one true God in the context of common worship of pagan gods. Many, many, many pagan gods. 
And so Paul is trying to again say very clearly, Jesus is not like a lowercase g God in the plurality of gods, or just a plain man who happens to be quite a good teacher. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. Jesus is the true God. And Paul goes on to use this prayer. He uses the term whole fullness. It seems a bit redundant. But he's, again, trying to make it very clear. Who is this Jesus? So when the whole things of God dwells in Jesus, he's saying that the presence of God is in Jesus. And again, in that context of the Jewish faith, the presence of God was known to be on the ark, in the holy of holies, in the temple, and you may have heard this before, where only once a year does that high priest go to make an offering. That is how holy God is, and how separate men must be from this holy God. And Paul's saying, that presence of God that you think can only be in the ark, in the holy holies, in the temple, is it only high, the high priest once a year? It is in Jesus. He is God Himself. He is fully God. Not just a little bit God, not just one third God. He is fully God. And that's such an important thing to remember, right? In this Christmas season, where we celebrate Christ with reason for this season, through the ages, errors of different variations have been taught that essentially amount to saying that Jesus is not God. And we can have modern-day versions of that today, but they really are all very similar. And all these variations amount to the ancient false teaching of Arianism, which teaches essentially that Jesus is not God. People have been saying this for a very long time, and we're saying it today. And I was just reminded of saying this that someone told me from church that that they grew up going to church, but essentially had a view that was Arianism. And they got to correct that view in order for them to really enter into a relationship with God. And it reminded me of a conversation I had with a family member who I've been trying to share my faith with, who had come to hear me preach many times. And, and uh, after one sermon, they asked me, so, Dee, are you saying that Jesus is God? I was like, I'm pretty sure in any number of sermons you've heard me preach, I said Jesus is God. And it reminded me of the guy that was seeking Christ and his disciples when we met. He got to be talking over the Bible. And he's like, now, this might sound like a stupid question, but are you saying Jesus is God? Yes! I'm saying Jesus is God. Surely I've said that before. But all of these instances remind me that what Scripture teaches is that God has to spiritually open our eyes to know Christ personally. That something that seems like so foundational to our Christian faith, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God incarnate, coming in the flesh, that, that is constantly being challenged. And we ourselves have been tempted to stray from really believing that Jesus is God, the whole fullness of deity dwells in him. Now he goes on to say, from in the Colossians, says this, verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him in faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So we're going to get to this part where we look at how Jesus is the fullness of God in flesh, and we look at how this means for us that we are softened our hearts to the sanctifying work. And we have to remember that circumcision in the Old Testament is a sign of being set apart for God and His purposes, set apart as His people. Yes, it was the head of the household that would be circumcised, but it covered over the whole family. It is a sign of being made holy for God and His glory. It's a sign of a special relationship with Him. It's a sign of being in covenant with God, where God's people have responsibilities towards God, but even more profoundly, that God had responsibilities towards His people. Now Paul is saying that that physical circumcision in the Old Testament was simply pointing to the spiritual circumcision that had to be done by God Himself. That the circumcision by hand is no more. But the circumcision of the heart, spiritual circumcision, the circumcision that cannot be done by hands, can only be done by the Holy Spirit, is what is needed in our hearts through faith in Christ. We are raised to new life through faith. We are raised to new life through this circumcision of our hearts, this spiritual circumcision. Set apart for holiness, set apart for God's purposes, set apart in this special relationship with God. And he goes on to say, Paul, verse 13, And you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by trying to open the kingdom. Condition as humans, whether they're Christian or not, is always far worse than we imagine. Now, I'd like to hear that, but that's the truth that is taught in Scripture. And the Christian life lived well is therefore a scary and exciting adventure of our brokenness being revealed by God and our Lord's love for us, filling us in those places of brokenness redeeming us in those places of brokenness to show us the extent of our possible goodness and love is also vulnerable that the change that we are able to go through is far more than we can imagine we don't have to hear that the scripture teaches our child without Christ we are spiritually dead in our sins that we are uncircumcised in our flesh, that the death of our wrongs that we've done in our life, whether in our heart, our thoughts, or our actions, that those are counted against us and rightfully so. And all this means we need to be made alive spiritually. We need to be sanctified and cleansed and changed through the Holy Spirit. That our, the death of our wrongs need to be nailed to the cross. And this is what Christ came into the world to do. For as Paul says so well earlier in Colossians, in Colossians 1.13, where he has rescued us from the domain, the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son of Jesus. We have an inclination to drift from God. Without Christ, we are under the dominion of darkness. But through Christ, 
our information is changed towards God. And we are transferred into the kingdom of the Son. Jesus came to rescue us from the dominion of the white age, to bring us into the kingdom of Asim, from darkness to light, from death to life, from brokenness to wholeness in Jesus. I'm going to end with this part in um, one of the Narnia books. In the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we find only Lucy and Edmund staying at their cousin's house. Eustace, and if you haven't read it, Eustace is, as the British would say, a very hard little boy. And if you haven't read the book or watched the movie, think Harry Potter's cousin, that kind of horrid little boy that is just bratty and spoiled, and whose parents think his brattiness is a sign of how special he is. That's the kind of horror that Eustace is in the way of the object. And certainly one of the subplots in this book is, is the transformation of Eustace by Asim. Now the three of them, Lucy, Edmund, and Eustace, are sucked into a painting at the house um, and into Narnia. And in Narnia, Eustace gets away from Edmund and Lucy He's horrid and he doesn't like them. And he happens upon an old uh, dead dragon's den. And with all its treasure and gold and coins, and, and in his greed, he just wants to stay there. And he sleeps there. As he sleeps, he finds himself transformed into a dragon. Not a cool dragon, a horrid, ugly dragon. And when he finds himself in that state, he's quite disturbed, obviously. And so we come to the scene where Aslan is, is trying to heal him from a hurt leg that he has. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain of my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. And the lion said, but all of it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his paws, I can tell you. But I was pretty young and desperate now. So I just laid flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought, thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff. Well, you know, you never pick the stab of a sore place. It hurts like Billy, but it's such fun to see it coming off. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, you killed the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peel switch and small than I and he caught hold of me. And I didn't like that much, but it was very tender underneath, now that I have seen him. And threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a minute. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy. That kind of transformation we need as human beings is not Someone outside of us 
we surrender, come and heal us and sanctify us and change us. We need someone outside of us to come into us and empower us for that change. And it's painful. The deepest kind of change is painful. And mostly, we don't want it. Understandably so. No one likes pain. But if we are content with just tweaking our weaknesses to our lives, then we'll just be like useless, scratching off some scales, but never transforming from a dragon back into a wolf. Never becoming the original self that God meant us to be always. The one that was untainted from sin. God is not content with leaving us as dragons scratching away at our scales. God longs for us to be transformed completely into his image, into Christ's image. God wants a new heart for us. That's the kind of change he wants for us. Like Eustace, we must trust and depend on him to do so. Like Eustace, we must become nearly desperate enough for him to take control rather than us. We must have hearts that are soft towards God to allow that work to happen, to allow that change to continue to happen in us beyond our minds. Yes, the Holy Spirit is at work in us to sanctify us, but we must cooperate with the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. We must repent of our hard hearts and his heart. And we must experience anew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and soften our hearts towards God. It is His grace which softens our hearts. When we keep looking to ourselves and fix ourselves in our hearts, we'll actually harden more. It is when we fix our eyes on Jesus instead and His grace and His love and His forgiveness. That's when our hearts soften for the kind of change that our Lord desires for us. So let's start this new year, not with a long list of to-dos for our change, but let's start this new year softening our hearts towards Christ by fixing our eyes on Him, by resting on Him, and trusting in the sanctifying work that He wants to do in us. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God in the flesh. So let's allow Him to do the sanctifying work in us as we soften our hearts.